Good morning, church. Welcome into the house here this morning. It's so good to see you. Wow, we've got a, a house full of people here today, and uh, thank you so much for uh, just coming out on this uh, beautiful weekend. You know, we sang some amazing songs there, didn't we? Wasn't that a great song set? Uh, we had someone leave the service uh, Saturday night a week ago, and uh, they said to the guest or, or to the member who brought them, they said, man, I'm so glad we didn't sing It Is Well With My Soul. Right? I don't know if you've ever felt like that. There's just a song that you just don't want to sing. You can't sing. Maybe today you had trouble singing that song about everything, right? And everything, give him thanks. Or maybe you're even struggling to know if God is even good. I mean, you've just lost a loved one. You've gone through some difficult times and you've got struggles and you're struggling to know that God is good. I want you to know that that's okay. It's why we're here. We're here to discover more and more the goodness of God as we relate together in his word, as we sing together these songs and just kind of reaffirm those truths over and over again. And we hope today that you see and understand more of the goodness of God as we gather. Welcome again to the last week in our summer series called You Ask For It. And uh, you know what that means, don't you? That means that next week we get together, it is going to be September You know what comes in September? That is fall. And while next Sunday doesn't officially begin the fall season, it kind of begins some, you know, new things for us and all that is coming. Um, A couple things, you know, are coming up next weekend is college football kickoff, right? I think we have uh, maybe, I don't know when the first game at Beaver Stadium is. I think it's a week later, but uh, college football kicks off. NFL kicks off as well. By the way, I saw this quote this week from the NFL. Please don't pick an older children for believing in Santa. I know grown-ups who still believe in the Dallas Cowboys. So. Oh, man, yes. Right. You know what? I can only share that because some of the people I love most are Dallas Cowboy fans. So. You can kind of deal with that afterwards, but hey, welcome online audience as well into this place today. Uh, there's a couple things that came out this week that uh, were kind of news items for us, and I just want to bring this to your attention because they're matters of prayer for us and maybe even matters of consideration. Uh, but number one is our youth, our, our kids point director, uh, Rodney Beisline, has announced his resignation effective October the 1st. Rodney has taken the senior pastor position at the Shippensburg First Church of God, downtown Shippensburg. Yes, give it up for Rodney. I'm not sure if Rodney's in the house today, but uh, we just want to uh, let you know that all this is happening. A major transition is going to happen then in our Kids Point uh, ministry with a new director coming in, but we love this opportunity that God has given to Rodney. This is one of the sweet and sour, bittersweet things for us at Grand Point, isn't it? Love, we love gathering staff, building staff. When it comes to sending them out, it's a little bit painful. But we love uh, the very fact that God has called Rodney to do this. We believe there's great opportunities for Rodney at the Shippensburg uh, First Church. Some of you are like, wait, don't we have a church in Shippensburg? Yes, we do. Grand Point is also in Shippensburg, and this is a cooperative, uh, collective effort to minister with other churches there. The very fact that Rodney is right down the street from our campus and is so close to us gives us a lot of opportunities to do some things together, uh, to support each other, because we're all about the kingdom. We're all about reaching Shippensburg. And so this is just a, a great moment for Grand Point Church. The other thing that has happened that has come out uh, kind of newsworthy for you as well and something for you to consider is this. Uh, By the beginning of January, uh, beginning of January 2023, 
Grand Point Church facilities will become the home for the Grand Point Early Learning Center. It's a a five-day-a-week daycare center coming in here, and we're kind of excited about that. The reason is, and again, some of you might be thinking, wait, don't we have enough going on around here? Right? Why are we adding another five-day-a-week thing? Furthermore, we have a Kids Point director that's kind of moving out. Listen, the reason that we're doing this is because on Vision Sunday, Vision Weekend 2021, we announced that for 2022, our main focus as a church is going to be determining community needs. We're going to try to reach out to our community right around us, determine what needs are there. And we had a very clear revelation that daycare is a great need in the Chambersburg community. So we're going to provide that. We have that. God has blessed us with an amazing facility. We're still working through some final uh, decisions on that. Pastor Chad is leading the charge on that. and We have a few final inspections, but one of the things we need is a director. So that is out there for hire right now. We're hiring two full-time uh, directors for that, uh, for, for those positions. And if you or anyone that you know is interested, might be interested in that, let us know. Uh, we're receiving applications for that right now. But please make those matters, those two things, a, a matter of prayer. We'll be rehiring for our Kids Point Director and also hiring positions for the Early Learning Center. But great things, great things God is doing uh, through our church here. Also, next Sunday begins a brand new message series on the book of the Revelation. And after the summer series, I never thought Revelation would look so easy, but it is. Anyway, it's going to be a great, great series. Uh, we're so excited to begin that, and I'll mention something at the beginning, at the end of our service today as well. But today we're finishing up this series called You Ask For It. If you just walked in today and you're brand new to us and you have no idea what we've been doing, let me just get, uh, share with you. For the, uh, ever since the beginning of, of May, May you know, June, July, and August, we've been doing this series called You Ask For It, and it's simply answering questions that you from the audience have asked. And we've been working through them, and today, if you notice on the outline, it is other questions. That simply means that there's some questions that came in that we did not have time to take a whole week on, and we're going to work through five of those questions today. You believe we can do that? Five questions? So I've got about 25 minutes. That means five minutes on each. So this is going to be like a helicopter flight over all of these questions. We're going to kind of zoom in on that. The questions are, number one, what is the best translation of the Bible? Uh, number two, what is the significance of the virgin birth? Question number three is, why did Jesus have to go to hell for three days? Question number four is, what does the Bible say about Christians drinking alcohol? And number five, if we have time for this, it's, will you talk about the elections this fall? Right. So I, I'm gonna, we, we might just run out of time for that one, but we'll see if we can get to it. All right, so here we go, here we go. Listen, we will get to that because you deserve an answer on all these questions. By the way, these are all great questions. So thankful that you asked them uh, as well. So let's, let's begin. Number one, what is the best translation of the Bible? Now, sometimes we get so confused and we struggle with the idea that there's so many different translations, right? Are they all accurate or have they lost their accuracy through the translation process? Well, first of all, you need to know that the Bible was not written in English. So it had to be translated for us. 
The Bible was first written in the Old Testament Hebrew and the New Testament Greek thousands and thousands of years ago. And ever since that original writing of those manuscripts, there have been many, many translations over that time. And sometimes we wonder, my goodness, with all of these new translations, is there a possibility that perhaps the Word of God means something different now than it did then? Has it lost some of its original idea? Because if this one is translating this one, and this one is translating this one, and this one translating this one, it's it's possible that something in that line of translations has has been lost. Now, one of the things, uh, it's kind of like that, that whisper game or the telephone game, right? You whisper something in somebody's ear over here, and then you go all the way around the circle, and by the time that message gets to person number 20, it's a totally different message. You need to know Bible translation does not work that way. Uh, It does not work that way at all. The modern, most recent translations are translated from the original manuscripts. They're not simply translated from the latest translation of the Bible. No, they're translated from the original manuscripts, not the most recent translation. And that is the reason why some of the most recent translations of the Bible are the most accurate because they're translations from some of the most recent discoveries of the oldest uh, manuscripts. For example, some of you maybe still carry or carry a, a, a 1611 King James Bible. That was translated in 1611. It was translated by about 47 English guys. And uh, it was a great translation, still is a great translation. But the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in 1947. And so translations since 1947 now are using the older manuscripts of the Dead Sea Scrolls for the accuracy of the translations. So all that is to say, the newer translations are not bad. In fact, some of them might have, might be even a little bit uh, more accurate. But let me just share, let me just kind of package it this way. The Bible translations can be put into three different uh, categories. One is we, what we might call formal equivalency. Formal equivalency means these translations are verse by verse. So the translators will look at the Hebrew manuscripts, they'll look at the Greek manuscripts, and they'll wordsmith every single word within that text. And then they'll look for an equivalency within the English language or whatever language is being translated into. And then that's what they will do. So formal equivalency translations would be the King James Version or the New King James Version or the New American Standard Bible or the English Standard Version, which is the version that I use uh, pretty much all the time in in, in preaching. Uh, So those would be formal equivalency. The second category of Bible translations is what we would call functional equivalency. This is not necessarily a word-for-word translation, but it's thought-for-thought. So the translators are looking back at the Hebrew or they're looking at the Greek text, right? And they're saying, okay, what was the author? Whoever it was, what was the author thinking? What was the thought process within this? I mean, they didn't have verses back then, but within the context or the paragraph, and then they would translate the thought process into the English or into the the language. So it's not necessarily a word-for-word translation, but this would be like the New Living Translation, the Good News Bible, uh, today's English version of the Bible, or the NIV, New English Standard Bible. Although, or New, New International, although that one barely makes the list because the New International is actually a combination of both 
of formal equivalency and functional equivalency. It is both thought for thought and word for word, which makes the New International Version of the Bible one of the most popular, one of the most accurate, and one of the most easiest translations to understand. The third category, though, is that of paraphrase, and that would be like the living Bible or the, or, or the message or something like that, and the paraphrase is not a translation from the original uh, language, but it takes our English translations and paraphrases them to make them easier to understand. Now, let me just briefly show you uh, one verse from each of these categories. Let's take the verse from Romans or 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4, from the King James Version of the Bible, which is a thought or a word-for-word translation. So 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4 says, Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself. It is not puffeth upeth. Right? So, so we, we, we don't speak like that anymore, right? That is so English, right? But, but it's, it's kind of beautiful. It's poetic and it's, it's, I, I kind of like the King James Version. It's my opinion that some people like it a little bit too much and they believe that it's the only translation that is accurate or valid as if God were from England, right? But, but all that is to say, right? It's a great translation. It's just, again, not in the language that we perhaps speak. So take that same verse and put it into the New International Version, again, which is more of a thought-for-thought process, and it says this, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. That's more like our talk, isn't it? It's a little bit easier for us to understand. So it's not charity suffereth long, it is love is patient. Right, so we understand that. Now take that same verse and put it into the message, paraphrase, and it's love never gives up. Love cares for others, uh, more for others than for self. Love doesn't want what it doesn't have. Love doesn't strut. Love doesn't have a swelled head. See, that's expanded. A little bit of attitude in there, right? Now you may want to use a paraphrase for your devotional reading, but probably you don't want to use that for serious Bible study. Because there is a lot of liberty in paraphrase, right? It's great, it's beautiful, it kind of brings things to life, but it maybe is not the most accurate. In fact, if you're serious about studying the Bible, you may want to get a study Bible. I use the New International Version Study Bible quite frequently. Uh, I don't have an English Standard Version Study Bible, but I have some others as well. But what that gives you is an accurate translation along with a little bit of commentary that helps explain the verse that you just read. Because the last thing that you want to do is read the Bible, close it, and then be like, I have no idea what I just read. Right? That's why we have different translations so that we can kind of work through that. So all that is to say, above all, above all the conversation on translations is read your Bible. Read your Bible. It is God's life-giving, God's life-changing word to you. So choose a translation that you understand because it is meant to be understood. And so the New International Version of the Bible is a great one for you if you're just kind of looking for one. New Living Translation also, again, but I use the, I use the English uh, Standard Version. But above all, read the Bible. It is God's word to you, and God wants us to understand it. Again, if you want any further help with that, you let us know uh, with that as well. Now, the second question. Second question is, what is the significance of the virgin birth? 
Does that make you ready for Christmas? 120 days yet till Christmas, by the way. So this, this uh, kind of comes from the Gospel of Luke, and I'm going to just kind of read a couple of verses from the Gospel of Luke, and that will help explain this, this question and the answer. From the Gospel of Luke, the story goes like this. It says, the angel Gabriel visits Mary to bring her the good news that she would be the mother of the Messiah. Now, Mary asks a very, very understandable question, very valid question. She says in Luke chapter 1, verse 34, how can this be? How will this be since I am a virgin? Now, Gabriel's reply indicates the miraculous nature of this conception. The angel Gabriel replies in verse 35, it's recorded in verse 35. The angel says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God, Son of God. So the angel points not to any human act, but to the Holy Spirit and the power of God as the agency of Jesus' birth. Jesus would properly be called the Son of God. Now, the virgin birth is so important and significant in that it preserves the truth that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. He is the son of God, but he was born of the Virgin Mary. So Jesus is fully God and fully man at the same time. Uh, In other words, Jesus did not have his beginning at Bethlehem. Jesus had his beginning a long time ago in eternity past with God the Father. That's why John says in John chapter 1 verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word is defined, uh, of course, as, as Jesus. But Jesus, the carpenter, Mary's husband, did not pass on his sinful nature to Jesus for the simple reason that Joseph was not the father. Jesus had, therefore, no sin nature. Now, with that, let me quickly address another question that often is associated with this. It was not necessarily asked as part of this series, but it goes right along with this. And the question is, could Jesus have sinned? Could Jesus have sinned? Or could he not sin? So if Jesus was fully God, we would say, well, no, he could not sin because God was sinless. But if he was also fully man, right? Well, then it seems like perhaps he could sin because most of us as human beings do not know what it would be like to be sinless. So here's the way I would answer that question. The answer to this question lies in the fact that sin is not fundamental to what it means to be a human. Let me explain this for a moment. Humanity was created sinless. Adam and Eve were created sinless. Sin only became a thing when that serpent, right, slithered into the garden, tempted humanity, and the first humans sinned, thus imputing sin to themselves and to the entire human race. But Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and he did not share in our sinful nature. And he himself did not sin, and he could not sin because he was God. Now, the the fact that he didn't have a sinful nature, though, does not make him any less human. This is where we struggle because all we know as humanity is sin and the sinful nature. But not only was humanity created without sin, our eternal future in the new heavens and the new earth will be lived out, man and woman, fully alive, and it will be unstained by sin just as our Savior is unstained by sin. I don't know if you ever thought about that or not, but mankind knew sinlessness, sinless, or sinlessness from the beginning, 
mankind will know sinlessness in eternity. So therefore, Jesus could identify with man, with mankind, be fully man, and not have sin. Because that would be possible without the sin nature within us. So the significance of the virgin birth is that Jesus was fully God and fully man. He can identify with us in our humanity, but being fully God, he provides all the power that we need to live that godly life. His, his virgin birth was also an example of God's gracious work on our behalf because God took the initiative to bring Jesus. Mary was not looking to become pregnant. This was not something that she even had in her immediate future. I mean, she was planning to be married, but she wasn't planning to be pregnant prior to marriage. So God took the initiative uh, in this as well. This was all God's idea. The power came from God. And this is a beautiful description, again, of our salvation. Our salvation comes from God working it into us. It is not anything that we do on a human level uh, to earn our salvation. It is all of God. So that is the significance of the virgin birth. Question number three is why did Jesus have to go to hell for three days? Now, some of you are very familiar. Maybe your tradition that you grew up with uh, always recited the Apostles' Creed. Uh, Some of you know that, and it goes like this. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. Now, that is one of the ways or one of the places that we get this idea that Jesus descended into hell. I'll get to a scripture in a moment. But the first thing I want you to understand is this. We need to determine the distinctiveness between the Apostles' Creed and Scripture. Scripture is inspired by God. The Apostles' Creed is not, even though it was based on Scripture. The Apostles' Creed also dates back, does not date back to the time of the Apostles. The Apostles' Creed was a huge work in in progress. It began about 200 A.D. and went all the way to 750 A.D., while people wrote it and rewrote it and rephrased it. In fact, the only time the Apostles' Creed included this phrase of Jesus descending into hell was in 390, when one of the writers or one of the editors of the Apostles' Creed uh, wrote this, but he understood it to mean that Christ was simply buried. He descended into the grave. Uh, now, in defending this part of the creed, though, we could jump over to that text of Acts chapter 2, verse 31, which says, He seeing this before he spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither did his flesh see corruption. The problem, however, with this Greek word translated in the King James Version, which was what that came from, the Greek word is actually translated Hades or Hades. Some of your translations will have that, which simply means the place of the dead. The word that definitively refers to hell is the word Gehana, and that is not used here. So it's possibly a mistranslation or a misunderstanding from some of the translators of the King James Version. I do not believe from reading the scriptures that Jesus descended into hell uh, after he died. In fact, when we look at the scriptures, we can kind of see what happens 
uh, after Jesus died. Remember when he was on the cross, there was a thief on his right and a thief on his left. And the one thief just cried out and said, God, you know, you know, and um, what were the words that he said? And he confessed his sins, right? And wanted to be in paradise uh, with the Lord. And Jesus said to him on that moment, today, you will be with me where? In paradise. So it almost implies that after Jesus died, he knew that he would be in heaven. He would be in paradise and he would see that repentant and newly converted thief. Also, some of his last words on the cross were, it is finished. See, Jesus has, had already suffered hell. Uh, hell is simply a separation from God. And Jesus, when he was on the cross, said, Father, why have you forsaken me? He went through all of that agony, feeling alienated and separated from his father. That was his time. That was his hell. And so while hanging on the cross, then he said, it's finally finished. It is finished. His work was over and so was his torment of being under the father's wrath and the alienation, paying for our sins. That was now over. And then just before he died, he said, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit, indicating that he expected the father to receive him when he died. Now, the next part of the Apostles' Creed, though, is correct in that he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and now he sits at the right hand of the father. And do you know what he's doing? The answer to this should thrill us. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but right now at this very moment, he is praying for us. That's what he's doing. He's praying for us. And, and the reason he's praying for us is because he knows your needs. He knows your heartaches. He knows your loneliness. He knows your pain. He knows your fears. He knows your uncertainties. And he's praying for you. Last night, someone uh, met Penny after the service. And we really don't know this woman very well, but it was such a blessing because she said, she said, she goes, I pray for you and Pastor Lawrence every day. That means a lot, by the way. It means a lot. But when I know that Jesus is praying for me, that means even more. Jesus, Jesus, that one who came into this earth, that one who went to the cross, that one who was buried in the earth, the one who ascended, that Jesus is now ascended, seated at the right hand of the Father, and he's praying for me. He's praying for you. And all of that, that knowledge right there should, should absolutely uh, thrill us. It says in Romans chapter 8, verse 34, he continues to pray for us because he's at the right hand of God and is interceding for you. Listen, whatever you believe, again, about this question of Jesus going to hell for three days and I've been challenged after the last service on, on this thing again, and I, I love the challenges that come at us on this. But um, whatever you believe about that, I just want you to know that Jesus is praying for you right now. You need to hold on to that truth. So mark that up in your Bible, Romans 8, verse 34. Write it down, but cement it in your mind, in your memory, just to know that Jesus is praying for you. Okay, question number four, moving right along here. I think we're tracking on time. What does the Bible say about Christians drinking alcohol? Now, when we were meeting last night, our team was together in the back room there. We were praying, and uh, they were asking me what questions we're talking about tonight. And I ran through the list of questions. And when I got to this one, one of the team members says, boy, that's a loaded question. No pun intended, I guess. But what does, the Christians, what does the Bible say about Christians drinking alcohol? Again, I'm going to give you a couple statements and then I'm going to go to some scriptures that will help us 
uh, process this and kind of work through this together. So the two questions that I'm going to ask are, is it wise to drink alcohol? The second question is, is it unwise to drink alcohol? The answer to the first question, is it wise to drink alcohol? My answer to that would be not necessarily. And I think we all know that for many people, it is unwise to drink at all. And here's where we take into consideration a, per, a person's background, right? Their disposition and their environment must all be considered into this part of the discussion. Now, if we go to a scripture, we can go to Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1, which says, wine is a mocker, strong drink. Some of your translations even say beer, right? Strong drink is a brawler. Whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Now, what this passage means is that wine and strong drink are powerful, and one simply cannot be led astray by them. In other words, that is a possibility. It is a possibility for someone to be led astray by strong drink. You can talk to anyone in a recovery program, and they will tell you that they never intended, when they took that first drink, they never intended to become an alcoholic. But somewhere along the line, they were led astray by it. You can talk to any woman who compromised her morality or compromised her uh, uh, convictions uh, while under the influence, and she will tell you, I never intended uh, to be violated, or I never intended to go there. You can talk to the man who killed my uncle and husband while driving drunk, and he'll tell you when he left the bar that night, he never intended to be in, in an accident that would claim the lives of two innocent people. But somewhere along the line, all these individuals were led astray, right, by the drink that they were a uh, part of. So is it unwise to drink alcohol? Well, not necessarily, or is it wise to drink alcohol? Not necessarily, because of its potential to lead astray. Now, let me ask the second question, which is very similar, and that is, is it unwise to drink alcohol? And I will answer that question with the same answer, not necessarily. In fact, when you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23, Paul writes and he says, all things are lawful. He's talking to Christians. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Now, here's what's happening in that particular context. If you go back even a couple chapters to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and 7 and 8, Paul is talking to these Corinthian believers, new believers about all kinds of stuff. I mean, he's going through the whole list of things. And here's what was happening. In Corinth, there were all these beliefs that people had, and they had these convictions about this and this and this. And one of those convictions was uh, eating meat that was offered to idols. So in Corinth, the people actually believed that the idols were real gods. They weren't just some kind of an inanimate object. They weren't just like a cross or a stained glass window or something that we might look at for some kind of a, a spiritual enrichment. No, they believed that the idols were real gods. And so what was happening in Corinth is they were offering meat or offering some of the meat to these idols. And now these Corinthians became believers and they're like, hey, these idols are still real gods. We can't eat this meat anymore because they were offered to these idols. Paul was trying to explain to them and trying to get them to understand that food is not the issue, right? These idols are not real. In fact, he even says in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, no, we know now that there is only one true God. 
There's only one true God. We don't have all these other gods out there, so the meat that's offered to them is not necessarily bad. It's actually lawful. You can eat that. The issue is not food. Now, some people take 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and they apply that to drinking alcohol, right? Because it's, or or what what Paul would say is, is though, let me finish that thought first. Paul would say, listen, if you're going to eat meat, right, and it offends somebody, well, then just refrain from eating meat. It's not that big of a deal, right? We'll just give that up so that, you know, we don't offend somebody in the process. The weaker conscience, he calls it. People that have yet to learn and yet to know the truth of God and the freedom that we have in Christ. He says, just be careful that you don't offend them. Now, some people would take that verse, they apply it to alcohol, and it might work very well. You could apply that to all kinds of things. Do we go trick-or-treating on uh, Halloween? You know, do we uh, send our teens to the school dance? Or do we, you know, all kinds of things like that that we sometimes take liberties with, but other people have issues with. So Paul just says, be careful that you're not offending uh, somebody in this. Now, the correct answer to this question then is going to be found in the context, obviously, of each unique situation. What is the situation that you're in? That's what Paul was addressing in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. In this particular situation, right, you might be causing someone else to stumble. You might be causing that weaker person to maybe do something that is going to hurt them. Just don't do it. But maybe there's another context where, yes, it's... You're, you're okay, you've made, uh, you, you understand the scriptures to allow this to happen in your life. And so Paul would say, listen, it's within the context of the situation. There's a big difference in whether or not we're talking about drinking to get drunk or to get loaded, or whether we're talking about having a glass or two of wine or a couple of beers. In his book, you'll love this title, What Would Jesus Drink? Right? Brad Whitman uh, went through the whole Bible and he picked out every single verse in the Bible that talks about drinking alcohol. And he divides it into three types. He says there are 247 references to alcohol in Scripture. 40 of those references are negative. They're warnings against it. That's where the Proverbs text would come in. Like, don't do it because it could lead you astray. Uh, potentially list the potential dangers of alcohol. 145 of those are positive. Though the Bible speaks a lot about wine and about its cultural expressions. In fact, Jesus even says, I am the vine, right? You're the branches. We even use wine in the process of communion, remembering uh, Christ's sacrifice. And so there are 145 references to wine in the Bible that are actually positive. They're they're, They're a reference to God's blessing, the fruit of the vine, or to use in worship. And then 62 of those are neutral in which people are falsely accused perhaps of being drunk or maybe taking vows of abstinence, refusing strong drink and all that. But you need to know that the Bible is anything but silent on the issue of wine. But it's like all alcohol, it must be treated carefully. Yes, it can be treated as a blessing and received with thanksgiving among those who drink it, but it must not ever, ever be abused, just like any other thing that could lead to sin, that abuse could lead to sin. Now, I know that in a room this size, we're going to have people on all sides of this issue. There's going to be people in this room who say, absolutely, no alcohol for Christians, right? Because of its dangers, what it could do. Listen, we totally understand that and respect that position. But there are others in here who are like, I don't have any problem with a glass of wine for dinner. 
uh, you know, or, or a couple beers, and because it's all within the context of control and fellowship, or perhaps, you know, there's even Christian groups that get together and share in, in that as well. We have all kinds of uh, opinions on this. So Paul would say in Romans chapter 14, whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. In other words, you just have to settle this in your own heart. You have to settle this in your own spirit of conviction. Is it okay for me to have a drink or is it not okay for me to do this? Again, based on all the scriptures that speak to both. But he says, blessed is the man who does not condemn himself by what he approves, but the man who has doubts is condemned if he eats or we might even add drinks because his eating or drinking is not from faith and everything that does not come from faith is sin. So if you're going to have this drink against your conscience or against what you believe is the word of God, yes, then it is a sin. If for some reason you can justify this or you can take the scriptures and have peace with God about it, then it would seem to be a liberty. This Paul would say, this is something that you can do. Now, perhaps I left this way too open-ended for some of you, and we can have further conversations about this. But please know, again, it's back and forth in the scripture. We we can kind of uh, see both in this. It's just certainly not to be abused. Question number five. Are we out of time yet? Are we still good here? Question number five. Are you going to talk about the elections this fall and uh, tell us how to vote? I've actually been asked this question several times. And let me, let me just say to this, say to you, it's a great question. And uh, one that deserves an answer from me so that you know where I stand and why I take the position I do as your pastor. Listen, I prayed hard about how to answer this question because I don't want to use any words or uh, use a tone of voice or even a facial expression that says something that I didn't want to communicate. Uh, Penny tells me a lot recently that when I'm in a thinking or a processing mode, I look mean. I get these lines, I get these lines across my forehead and I get this look that people are like, I, what, you know, what's, what's he at? So, so I've, I've learned since that, that it's not only my wife that notices that, but it's some other people as well. It's like PL's got the look. But let, let me just, let me just say this. If I ever have that look, I'm probably not as half as mad as I look at you, right? I'm just there. But Penny says, when I go to a meeting, elders meeting, staff meeting, make sure your face shows what you're thinking, right? Uh, let, it, let it shine out of your face. What, what do you say, Penny? Let your face. Anyway, she gives me this line all the time. But uh, So I want to be careful today when I answer this question that my face is also projecting uh, the great answer here that I want to give to you. I am going to give you a response to this. I don't want to look like this, the gladiator going into the Colosseum kind of thing. So I'm going to try to keep a smile on my face this morning as I answer this. I want you to know that my response to this question is not to be contrary. It's not to be disagreeable with any person. To me, this is not an I'm right, you're wrong uh, sentiment because I realize that there's somebody in this room that is going to totally disagree with me on this one. And that's okay. I want you to know that's okay. But my answer comes from a deep conviction, a really, really deep conviction regarding my role as your pastor. And that is this. I believe that my role as your pastor is not to divide the church over earthly political parties. My role as your pastor is to unite the church over a much more significant kingdom that you and I are already a part of. And that's the position that I will take. Uh, I'll share with you something that I shared with the elders about three months ago. 
And I shared with them that in my 25 plus years of ministry as a senior pastor, I have never experienced the level of divisiveness in the church as I do now. And you know this, it's within the culture. It's with race, it's with COVID issues, it's with political parties and all that. That's not a surprise. So you know this is a very divisive time that we live in. It's come right into the church uh, as well. And here's why this happens. Everybody has access to plenty of information, and everybody believes that their information is true. Everybody believes that their information is the correct information. Consequently, everyone is a victim of cognitive bias. Everyone's a victim of confirmation bias. And that results in some people coming into the church with their opinions and their politics on the front burner and expecting the church and all the leadership here to agree with them. And believe me, I understand that. It totally makes sense that you, what you believe to be truth is what we should believe as truth, and therefore we should be proclaiming this truth and taking bold stands and positions on it. But when that expectation, when that expectation that you have is not met, then we're perceived as being weak, we're perceived as being timid, we're perceived as being unwilling to take a stand right on, on certain issues or bold stands. And I know that sometimes the middle, riding the fence, right, is the weak position or maybe it's a place of compromise. But I want you to know, and this will help you understand my position, my responses to things. It will help determine what expectations you can have of me. But when it comes to uh, all this political, current political tensions, I am choosing to take a stand in the middle. Let me explain. Let me explain. When Jesus came into this world, he came as a servant. He never came to power up. He didn't come into this world to play the God card. He did not come into this world to win. He came to lose. He came to lose. And the moment that the church begins to play to win, we've already lost. Because the only way to win in this world is to adapt the instruments and the methods of this world. And I don't believe that's what the church is called to do. We're not here to play like the world does. No, the call of the church is to address the hearts of men and women rather than drop down into this realm where we're simply going to be used. We're going to become a voting block. We're just going to become a constituency, right? For the body of Christ to allow itself to be used by either political party, man, we've lost our voice And we've ultimately lost our opportunity to be the conscience of the nation. I firmly believe that to become the conscience of the nations, we have to stand above politics and speak to the hearts of men and women on both sides of the issue. Dr. Tim Keller says it this way in his typically perceptive, analytical way. He says, one of the many reasons for the decline of church going and religion in the United States is that increasingly Christians are seen as highly partisan foot soldiers for political movements. This is both divisive within the church and it's discrediting out in the world. Many Christians publicly disown and attack other believers who share the same beliefs in Christ, but they attack them because they're voting for the wrong candidate. They seem to have more in common, uh, more of a common bond with people of the same politics than they do of the same faith. Ah, may that never be said of us at Grand Point Church. 
He says when the church as a whole is no longer seen as speaking to questions that transcend politics, and when it's no longer united by a common faith that transcends politics, then the world sees strong evidence that Nietzsche and Freud and Marx, they were all right. Religion is simply a cover for people wanting to get their own way in this world. I would say here, regarding our mission, and regarding our vision, the only way that we're going to accomplish our mission to help as many people as possible is to rise above the divisive nature of our current culture. See, the role of Grand Point Church is to serve all people by speaking to issues and matters of the heart that create a safe place for people of both political persuasions to come together to discover the truth of God's word. And I don't want this to be a Republican congregation. I don't want this to be a, re- a Democratic uh, congregation. Listen, I want this to be a place where we come together, regardless of our differences, and discover the truth of God's word, because that's our opportunity to make a difference. Does this mean that Christians should not stand boldly for biblical truth or morality? Absolutely not. That's not what I'm saying at all. We must and will take a stand on moral and biblical issues, but they are issues that will strike at the very heart of the gospel. We're not going to divide over issues that are not gospel-centered, right? We're going to to stand together on, on what God's word says. Now, all that is to say, I believe that we can and should participate in our political process. But as salt and light rather than as divisive partisans. And there's the difference. So, will I speak about politics this fall? I'll give you you my word on this. I will do my best in every season, not just the fall, I'll do my best in every season to always present the gospel, the good news, the truth in a way that speaks to our hearts and to our minds, informing us for all decisions that we need to make in life. Not just political decisions, but all decisions. Right? Is that fair? This may be a good place to kind of end our series uh, together. I know that I've not addressed every single issue related to your questions, but let me affirm you that our value, one of our values here at Grand Point Church, is that what God has to say through his word, through the truth, is more important than our opinions More important than all that we'll gather perhaps on the internet, right? Because there's plenty of information out there. But what God's word has to say is more important. And we're going to stand on God's word. We believe that God alone defines reality. So we're going to affirm that God's word has the final say. Now, hopefully that is okay with you because this will never, never lead you astray. So I want to close this entire series, this entire series where we work through some very complex issues Uh, Some issues that have the potential for fallout, I know that. But listen, I don't want this to be divisive in any way. But what I want you to do is take the word, and I want you to read the word. Pray the word of God over your life. Pray the word of God over your marriage. Pray the word of God over your family. Pray the word of God over your home, over your community, over our state, over our nation. Because this is the truth of God, and he is going to speak through you. He's going to help you discern what it is you need to do in every situation in life. The word of God is a light that guides your path. Psalm 119 verse 130 says, the unfolding of your words give light. Man, we live in a dark world, don't we? 
We need light. This, is, this will give it to us. And then it says it imparts understanding to the simple. I don't know what decisions you're needing to make right now. I'm not sure where you're bogged down with decision-making, whether it's politics, whatever it might be. Listen, all I want you to know is the Word of God will give you understanding. It will give you wisdom. It will give you insight into every decision that you need to make. So no, I'm not going to tell you how to vote, but the Word of God will. I'm not going to tell you what decision you need to make about your job, about your future, about your relationships, but the Word of God will. It speaks. It speaks. So let me end by saying thank you. Thank you for creating this summer series with your questions. And again, I know that we work through complex issues at times, and I just want us to be a place, though, where we can ask questions. We can ask honest questions and learn from each other. I'll let you know I'm still a learner, and I've learned so much from you. You've come up here after some services, and you've disagreed with me on certain issues, and I appreciate I appreciate you letting me know about that. I appreciate conversations that we've had after some of these questions because it helped me go deeper into some of the biblical texts that you brought to me that I didn't even present or maybe didn't even cover. But all that is to say, man, the body of Christ, the family of Christ, is here to learn together. We're here to help navigate life together. We're here to kind of figure this out. There's no one of us that has the market in all this, right, that understands it all. But we lean into the Word of God because He does. He knows it all. And He knows exactly what is best for us, what's best for our families, what's best for our nation. We lean into Him. Let's pray together. God, I want to thank you today for your truth. Truth that sets us free. Free to be all that you intended for us to be. Free to live out our freedoms and our liberties that come in Jesus Christ. Free from the bondage of sin and free from traditions and things that held us back and keep us small. Free to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth. God, my prayer would be that we would just lean into your truth and we would make this our our decision-making guide. We would hold this high. We would hold this uh, firmly. We would stand firm on on the truth and that we would seek and go deep to help uh, to understand it. God, I thank you that your spirit just guides us for that. It illuminates and guides and speaks to our hearts. I just pray that everyone in this church, in this congregation, those within this room and those that are tuning in today online, God, I just pray that all of us would just make a decision today just to go deep into your word, to learn, to receive the guidance and direction that we need for life. We thank you for providing that for us in Jesus' name.